So we can, uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4. So we're going to be looking at on this Thanksgiving morning, Philippians chapter 4. And I've titled this sermon, Thank You God for the Fleas. Thank You God for the Fleas. Now the title comes from the true story of two Christian sisters who found themselves in a Nazi prison camp for aiding and hiding Jews. And their names, which some of you might know, were Corey and Betsy Ten Boom. See, Corey described their experience in the camp in this way. She said, and I quote, All day long and often into the night came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or any human emotion, but of cruelty altogether detached. Blows landing in regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten-deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them into our ears to make the sound stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within those four walls, there was way too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. And then soon after... Uh, the sisters were moved to a new dorm area where to add to the horror of their experience that they're already facing, the straw beds that they were to sleep in were infested with fleas. Corey looked over at her sister Betsy who said with a smile on her face, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey said to herself. I can't, I can, I can give thanks to God, but what is this? Give thanks to God in all circumstances? Give thanks to God for the fleas? And so the two women then proceeded to thank God. They thanked God for the fact that they were together. They thanked God for the fact that uh, he had allowed them to bring a Bible into this prison camp. They even thanked God for the horrible crowds of prisoners because these were, were desperate women who would now be able to hear the good, new, the good news of God's word. And then, as they were praying, Betsy thanked God for the fleas. And at this, Corey objected, the fleas, that is too much. There is no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. And Betsy said to her, give thanks in all circumstances. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances, Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so the two sisters standing there between their flea-infested bunks in the, in the basement of a Nazi concentration camp gave thanks to God for the fleas. Well, if you know the story, it turns out that the fleas were actually a blessing to the woman. See, the fleas were the reason that the guards would not come down and abuse the woman, harass the women, and why they would leave them alone. They would be able to study their Bible with everyone there reading God's Word out loud. And so they thanked God for the fleas because the fleas were a blessing to them. Those are hard words for all of us to say, thank you God for the fleas. But nonetheless, Betsy was right. As Christians, we are called to give thanks in all circumstances. 
And so today we're going to be looking at the topic of Christian contentment. Now normally at Evergreen, we're working through a book of the Bible. We've just finished up 1 Peter. And before we start uh, Jonah, I thought it would be good for us to look at this topic of Christian contentment, which is very much linked to the idea of thanksgiving, of giving thanks to the Lord. And so the two go hand in hand. When you have one, you have the other. So let's read now this morning from God's Word. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 13. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. See, Paul here says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I am to be content. We are going to dive a little bit deeper into that statement by asking three questions. Three important questions. First, what is contentment? You know, what does it actually mean to be content? If we want to be content, we need to know what that looks like. Sometimes we can have wrong understandings of what that actually is. Second question, that's the first question. Second question, why pursue contentment? See, if we are going to pursue contentment, we must see the excellency of contentment as well as the evil of its opposite. And then finally, third question, how do we attain contentment? How do we attain contentment? Once we know what it is, once we know the excellency of pursuing it, we need to know the secret. Paul says here, he has learned the secret. How do we attain contentment? And so the goal then is that the end of today's message, you will leave here with a greater understanding of contentment, a greater desire for contentment, and a greater ability to experience contentment in your life. And so that no matter what circumstance you find yourself in, whether it be good times where we need to be content in good times or bad times, you can be satisfied in the Lord and His workings in you. And then maybe, just maybe, when you encounter the the fleas in your life, those horrible, unpleasant, seemingly uh, meaningless, uh, unprofitable, painful things in your life, you'll be able to reach a point where you can say, Thank you, God, for the fleas. So first then, what is contentment? So Jeremiah Burroughs, a Puritan Puritan pastor during the, the first half of the 17th century, he wrote a book on this called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. It's a book that I uh, would recommend a hundred times uh, to any Christian. Now much of what I'm going to say comes from you know, his teaching of God's Word, his uh, exposition of that on this subject. And so, uh, I'm going to work with his, exam- his definition of what contentment is. And so, this is how he defines it. He says, Christian contentment 
is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now let me, let me say that again. I should have typed it out for, on the screen. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. I think that's a pretty good definition of Christian contentment. And now we're going to break down this definition a little bit and see how how God's Word informs uh, this definition. First we see contentment is inward. That is, it's not something that's external to you, but it is an internal working of the heart. Psalm 62 verse 1 says, Truly my soul finds rest in God. See, we might have the, the outward experience of contentment. We might look you know, calm, cool, and collected. We might even pay lip service to contentment in our lives. But true contentment is internal. It's in, my, it's in my heart, my soul, my spirit that has been settled in the Lord. It's a complete you know, changing of our frame of spirit. Jeremiah Burroughs gives an example. He says, suppose someone is disturbed and you bring them a gift and through the gift they are quieted and contented. In that case, what brought them contentment was something external, not the disposition of their own spirits. But Christian contentment comes from a changed heart, not from any changes in the circumstances around us. You know, Christian contentment is inward. Second, Christian contentment is also quiet. It's quiet. Now, that does not mean that contentment is opposed, as I said earlier, to making holy moans and, and our agonies known to God and even to others. When we read that Psalm 13, we bring our, our troubles to the Lord. Nor does it mean that we don't recognize our afflictions or even hope for deliverance from those afflictions. But, but contentment is opposed to, to murmurings, to vexation. It's opposed to a, a troubled or a distracted spirit. And it's opposed to sinful attempts to try to deliver us from our affliction. I mean, David... By all means, a, a man of affliction models this for us. David makes his moans known to God throughout the Psalms, yet he never goes as far as to murmur against God or to seek sinful deliverance from his affliction or to complain that God is the one who is, is preventing him from being content because God is the one who is who has put him in these circumstances. You know, he's content with the Lord's working and with the Lord's timing. Third, we see that contentment is freely submitting to God. It's freely submitting to God. We're not coerced into contentment, but we freely seek it. Now, you need to make a, a personal judgment and decision that you will be content in the affliction that you find yourself in. No, we say, 
This is the hand of God. What I am in, this is the hand of God, and this is what is suitable to my condition or what is best for me. Although I do not see the, the reason for the thing, still I am satisfied in it. And Jesus models this for us perfectly in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, as Jesus is sitting there praying, thinking about the task that he is about to undertake, he freely submits to God's will rather than his own. See, he cries out, you know, these words as he's sweating drops of blood, thinking about the wrath of God he is going to bear for mankind. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He freely submits to God's, to God's will and, to, God, and to, the, to the place that, and the circumstance that God has put him in. But if that's all uh, you think contentment is, then you'd still be missing something. Because contentment is not only freely submitting to God, it's also delighting in God's workings. Now, this is perhaps the most difficult part of contentment. I mean, what does it mean to delight in or to take, take pleasure in God's disposal? What's having the faith to say, you know, I know that I am being afflicted, and I desire that in due time God will, will deliver me from this affliction, yet I am pleased insofar as, as God's hand is in this. See, God's hand is in every single one of our afflictions. And so we can be pleased as long as the Lord is in it. And so we look at our afflictions and we see good in them. Psalm 119, verse 71, David says, It was good for me that I was afflicted. Now that's a little weird. It was good for me that I was afflicted. And then later he says, So that... I might learn your statutes. And so he saw that there was a reason. He saw that there was good in his affliction. And he didn't see it while he was in his affliction. He saw it afterwards. Yet he was still content. And so to be content is to take whatever circumstance you are in and being able to say, my circumstances are in ruin, yet through God's mercy, I am in good condition because the hand of God is good. The Christian has cause to take pleasure in God's hand, whatever God's hand may be. And then finally, contentment is submission and pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. See, contentment then is not about our circumstances changing, but about us changing in our circumstances. Contentment is not about our circumstances changing, but us changing in our circumstances. Contentment in the good times only is no contentment at all. Contentment is not like the the rich young ruler who who came to Jesus and he says, I have, and Jesus tells him, go and do all these things. He said, "I've, I've kept all of these commandments. And then Jesus says one more. Go and sell all of the possessions that you have and and give them to the poor. And the man leaves because he is not uh, willing to do that. You know, he's he's content to follow the Lord in this, but if the Lord asks him to do this, he's not 
He's not content in that. See, he drew a, a line in the sand that he said, I'm not going to pass this line. And so the question then for you is, is there a line that you have drawn in the sand? You know, I will be content in the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord. But if the Lord takes my house, I won't be content. If the Lord takes my job, I won't be content. If the Lord strikes my, my health, I won't be content. Or what about this? If the Lord strikes my children, I won't be content. See, Paul says in verse 12 of our passage, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See, whatever afflictions God might place us in, we must be content in them. We recognize God's sovereign hand is over every situation. And until God opens a door or God removes our affliction from us, we should be willing to stay. God has put us in and God will bring us out in due time. And if we are content, we can say, thank you, God, for the fleas. Now, there's some mystery to this idea of contentment. So a couple chapters in Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs' book where he, he talks about the mystery of contentment. I want to highlight one of those for you. And the mystery is that because though we are content in the world, we are deeply unsatisfied with the world. Jeremiah Burroughs says, the most contented man in the world is also the most unsatisfied man in the world. He is content if he has but bread and water, yet he could never fully be satisfied should God give him all the kingdoms and empires of the world. And that is because we are made to never be fully satisfied in anything in this world. That's why Paul, who who is a man who was content in every circumstance, can also say, no, I desire to be, to, to depart and to be with Christ. He was content in his situation, but he was never fully satisfied. As long as sin exists and, and, and the veil of our sinful flesh inhibits us from fully experiencing the Lord, we live contented lives, but we eagerly long for that day when we will behold him in all of his glory and be fully satisfied. So that is contentment. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's disposal, God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. When Paul says in verse 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content, this is what he means. Now, a question that you need to ask yourself as you're reading this Are you content? Are you content? Can you look at your life, look at your circumstances and say, I am delighting in the Lord in this? Is this how you deal with the afflictions that arise in your life? Do you murmur, complain, 
and become angry about your circumstances? Or can you say, in every circumstance, the Lord has me here and I will delight in it? Are you content? Now, I've told you what contentment is. Now, I want to look at the second question, and that is, why pursue contentment? So we know what contentment is. Now, why do we pursue it? And some questions come with that. You know, is contentment just an option for the super holy of us? Is contentment just itself another affliction to add to our difficulties? I mean, it's hard not to complain in difficult circumstances. The first thing we usually do when something difficult happens is we complain about it. And, and then what is the alternative? So, what is the al- so if we're not going to be content, what is the alternative to contentment? Well, there are many reasons why you should pursue contentment. We don't have time to go over all of them now, and so I just want to give you two reasons why. First, there is great gain in contentment. There's great gain in contentment. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6 to 8 says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. See, Paul says to Timothy, there's great gain in godliness with contentment. There's an excellence of contentment. There is a, a value in pursuing it. You see, when we, are, we are content, when we are content in every circumstance that God has for us, we show the, the worthiness and the glory of God like no other thing. You know, what honors God more than to be sitting there with nothing but the clothing on your back and being able to say, the Lord giveth the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I think John Piper uh, hits the nail square on the head when he says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. See, when we can say to God, though you slay me, yet I will praise you, God is shown to be more valuable to us than anything in this world. And that glorifies God more than many things in this world. I mean, you can come to church every Sunday. You can be involved in this ministry or that ministry. You can have your children memorize the the Westminster uh, Catechism or the 1689 Catechism. You can You can give 50% of your income to the church. Yet when affliction comes, that is when your true loyalty to the Lord will show. And so why pursue contentment? Because there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Because we glorify the Lord through being content in Him and Him alone. That's the first reason to pursue contentment. A second reason is because to do, so, to do the opposite is an evil act of rebellion against God. You see, the opposite of contentment is discontentment. 
And discontentment is marked by dissatisfaction, lack of thankfulness, grumbling, murmuring, and complaining against God. Let me show you what it looks like to live the opposite of a contented life. Turn in your Bibles to Numbers 11. Numbers 11. In this passage, God has just redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and He's about to bring them. They're on the He's, they're leaving Sinai, and he's about to, to bring them into the promised land. And now let's look at the attitude of the Israelites. Numbers 11, verses 1 to 6. It says, And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing to look at, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And then turn a couple pages over to Numbers 14, verse 1 to 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that, he, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. See, earlier the the Israelites had complained because they wanted more food, and the Lord gave them manna. Now they complain because the food is not good enough, and then they complain that they would rather have died in Egypt or died in the wilderness than to enter into the promised land where there was going to be challenges. See, they would rather go back to Egypt where they were slaves so that they could have tastier food than to be content in what the Lord has provided. You see, a discontent person will never be satisfied. They will never be satisfied. There will always be something missing. You know, there will always just be one more thing and then I will be content. But we all know we've been discontent. When that thing comes that we think is going to to give us contentment, As soon as we get it, our contentment lasts, yeah, maybe a little while, but then something else is needed, and then I will be content. And in the Israelites' case, there was a serious punishment for those who grumbled. You see, they were prohibited. They were prevented from entering the promised land because of their grumbling, because of their complaining. I want you to think on that. 
The sin of grumbling prevented them from entering God's promised land. Psalm 106 verse 25 says, They murmured in their tents and they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and he swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. Grumblers, murmur, murmurers, complainers, discontent of heart will not enter the promised land. You know, we often think of complaining or grumbling or discontentment as like a minor sin. You know, everybody complains. Everybody, when they're going through a hard time, you know, can, can, can complain or grumble a little bit. We see this is not a, a minor sin. Grumbling and complaining is evil, and it is a rebellion against God. It's rebellion because when you complain or grumble because you're discontent with your circumstances, who is the one that you have a problem with? Is it not God? I mean, if, if I complain about my health, am I not complaining against God, who is Lord over health and sickness? If I complain about a difficult relationship or a difficult person, am I not ultimately complaining against God, who has made that person and put them in my life? If I am complaining that it is too difficult to do my day-to-day tasks that I have been given, am I not ultimately complaining against God who has placed me in that circumstance? Was this not the first sin of Adam and Eve? When even though they lived in the, the perfect world with no sin, no sorrow, they had perfect spouses, there was no affliction, all of creation was at their disposal, yet they were not content with it. They would only be satisfied if they had just a little bit more. And so they rebelled against God. And so why pursue contentment? Because the opposite is sin that leads to death. It led to death for Adam and Eve. It led to death for the Israelites. Now why should it be any different for us? Now moving on to our third and final point. We've seen what contentment is. We've seen why we should pursue it. Now the question remains, how do I attain this? I want to be content in my life. How do I be content? This is a a hard thing to do. It almost seems like an impossible thing to do. And so what is the secret? Well, we get our answer from the Apostle Paul. He says back, you can turn back to Philippians 4, in verse 12 to 13, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I want you to notice here, notice there what Paul said. He said that contentment is a, is a secret that can be learned. It can be learned. And he says twice in the passage that I learned to be content. So contentment then is something that we grow and learn over time. And there are a few truths or, or secrets that we need to learn if we are to grow in contentment. The first one is contentment is not about addition, but subtraction. Contentment is not about addition, but subtraction. Paul says here, whether plenty or hunger, 
whether abundance or need, he is content. See, contentment can be found at both sides of the the spectrum of prosperity. So the solution must not be adding more because you can find it at both ends. See, contentment is not about getting what you want and then you will be happy. It's actually about reducing your wants so that you are happy with whatever the Lord gives. See, the discontented person says, give me this and I will be happy. The contented person says, take away my desire for this and I will be happy. It's by subtraction, not addition. I want you to think on this. If contentment is, is by addition, then what is, what, what is bringing you contentment is not God, but it's that other thing. If you say, if I, if I only had a spouse, I would be content. If I only had children who, who listened to me, I would be content. If I only had a little bit more space in my house, I would be content. If I only had a nice cushion in my, my bank account for, for, for needs, I would be content. If only I had the cancer taken away, I would be content. See, in those circumstances, if that is our thoughts, really God is not the one that you are content in. Some other part of His creation is. It needs to be added to you so that you are content. And so you might think that by accumulating all you want, you will be content. No, you won't. No, you won't. The reason you are not content in this world is not because you don't have enough in this world. It's because the world is not able to fill your mortal soul, which can only be satisfied by God Himself. This is the truth that I learned prior to becoming a Christian. I sought satisfaction in the world, but never found it. I was always left wondering, you know, what is next? What is the next party that I can go to? What is the next thrill that I can experience? What is, what is this next pleasure that the world has to offer me? What else is out there? Because what I'm in now, this doesn't, this doesn't satisfy. It might satisfy for a little, but ultimately, I want to know what is next. And that's because our world will never satisfy. Isaiah 55 verse 1 to 2 says, and we sang it in that song, All Glory Be to Christ, this morning. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he he asks them a question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. See, stop spending your money for that which does not satisfy and for that which is not bread. Stop looking at the world to make you content and instead look to God. See, contentment is not about addition. It's about subtraction. John Rockefeller, perhaps the richest man to ever live, and I've said this quote before. Now, when asked, how much money is enough money for you, John? 
as he's sitting there with billions upon billions sitting in his bank account? And his answer was, just a little bit more, just a little bit more. No, we never have enough of this world. There's just a little bit more. And when we get that, there's just a little bit more. It's only God who can satisfy us. Another truth, I think, that helps us to learn, to learn, uh, to learn contentment is to recognize that we are nothing and that we deserve nothing. You see, we are, we are sinners who have rebelled against God. Why, do we, why should we deserve anything in this world? The only thing that we really deserve, if, we, if God gives us what we deserve, what he gives us is the wrath, is, is his wrath and eternity in hell for our sin. Yet, God has been so gracious to us. And the Bible says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. See, even though we didn't deserve a lick of it, God has given us so much. The forgiveness of sins. He made us children of God. He's made us co-heirs with Christ. He's rescued us from the slavery of sin. He has given us an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. He's given us His Spirit to enable us to, to live a life of, of joy and peace in the Lord. And He's given us so much more even than that. And so when we realize that we deserve nothing and that we really have been given everything in Christ, we learn to be thankful when we receive anything. From God. So if you want to learn contentment, learn that even if God gives you nothing, you already have far more than you deserve. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich. And this is the key, what he says here. Having nothing and yet possessing everything. Can you say that? I have nothing, and yet I possess everything. And finally, contentment is only attained by looking outside of ourselves for the ability to do it. Notice what Paul says that the secret is. He says, I've learned the secret, and then he says that that secret is, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The secret is that in Christ, we can be content in every single circumstance. When we are burdened by something, we need strength from someone else to help us remove that burden. Now, I clearly don't lift weights, but when I did lift weights, if there was a weight that was too heavy, I couldn't get it off myself. I needed someone else to come and to remove that and to, to help me lift that burden. And that's the same with Christ. Christ is the one who comes, and it's by His strength that He will grant us contentment in our afflictions. And Christ's strength is to, to endure, Christ's strength for us to endure is accessed by faith. Galatians 2 verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
And so now, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Trust in Jesus. Have faith that he can strengthen you through any situation that you find yourself in. And if you think it sounds hard to be content, you're right. It is hard, but it's not impossible. For I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so now back to what, as we close, back to what I, I, I talked about at the very beginning of the sermon. You know, those two girls, those two sisters sitting in a Nazi concentration camp, thanking God for the fleas. And how did they do it? Well, they knew that they didn't deserve anything. And they knew that even if they had everything, they would still be missing something. And they knew that in themselves, they could not be content. But in Christ, they have, to, they have the strength of the Lord Almighty to bring them to contentment in all things. And they knew that as long as they had Christ, they had everything that they needed. And really, that's what, what contentment comes down to. Is Jesus enough for you? Is Jesus enough for you? Do you believe and live according to the truth that if you have Jesus and absolutely nothing else, that you have everything? As Paul says, having nothing yet possessing everything? I've shared this story before, but I want to share it again because I think it shows how God's grace, through God's grace and mercy, we can be content in whatever affliction falls upon us. It's the story of Horatio Spafford. Maybe you've heard it. Horatio was a devout Christian. He was the father of five children. He was a successful lawyer in the United States. But in a matter of a few years, all of that would change for him. His, his only son, at a tender age of four, died from scarlet fever. And then only a few months later, his business and his investment properties were all burned down in the great Chicago fire, wiping away all of his life savings. And in order to get a little break from all that had been going on in his life, he decided uh, that his family would go on a vacation overseas in Europe. And so he sent his, his four daughters and his wife to go uh, ahead of him while he finishes up some work. And as they were traveling, uh, their ship collided with another ship, and all four of his daughters drowned that day at sea. After hearing the news, Horatio boarded a ship to meet his grieving wife in England, and as he was on that ship passing the spot where his young daughters drowned, the captain called him forward and he looked over at the underwater grave of these young children and he penned the words, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now how could he say those words at such a time? Well, he tells us in the very next verse, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. 
no matter what afflictions you find yourself in. Because Christ has given us everything though we deserve nothing. You can say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray.